Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Our hope is that we can develop a community of people who can benefit from our conversations and learn how to better apply behavioral science in their life and work. Yeah, so we have big news, Kurt. Well, yes, we do. Yeah, so after an extensive search, we have hired someone to help us out. Woohoo! This is going to be awesome. Oh, it's going to be so great to have some help, particularly for you, since you do most of the work. <laughs> All right, so Tim, should we introduce her? Well, you know, we had a conversation with with her last night, so maybe we should just let her introduce herself. Let's roll the tape. Hello, I'm Mary Caleb. Welcome, Mary. And if you can't tell from her accent, Mary is originally from Spain. What? What? Whoa, whoa. Not even <laughs> close, Kurt. Oh, my God. No? Not even remotely close. No. no. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm originally from Northern Ireland, but I live in England now with my husband and we've got three little kids. Oh, that's okay. fantastic. So, and, and by the way, you nabbed your husband from Minnesota, right? So like, you yeah. have an extra connection, right? Yeah, yeah. We lived in Minnesota for five years. My husband's American, so we've we've already got a connection to you guys. Cool. Fantastic. Well, I may not be very good at uh, detecting the right dialect, but I have been pretty good about being able to spot really good people. And we are super happy to have you joining us, Mary. Mary brings a wealth of background in marketing and business along with a great heap of curiosity, which is an invaluable asset for working with us, wouldn't you say, Tim? Oh, I, I would definitely say that. She also is a big lover of podcasts, which is important. But I got to say, curiosity and a lot of patience, that's going to be needed when working with us over the next six months. <laughs> patience is probably key in that. I would, I would agree with you there. All right, Mary, is there anything else that you want to say? Oh, I'm just so excited to get started. Uh, with you guys. I feel really privileged that you guys have chosen me to work with you. So I just can't wait for the next six months. That, that's great, Mary. Thank you. And we are super excited to have you with us. And I'm sure we're going to hear more from you over the next six months. All right. That's cool. That's very cool. But now let's get on with the show. So this week, we had the pleasure of talking with Melanie Green. Dr. Green is a professor at Ohio State University and examines the power of narrative to change beliefs, including the effect of fictional stories on real-world attitudes. Her theory of transportation into a narrative world focuses on immersion into a story as a mechanism of narrative influence. It was an in-depth conversation that explored concepts around how stories move us, the power of narrative to affect both cognitive and emotional feelings, and how restorative narratives can be used to help heal communities after disasters. So, without further ado, we invite you to sit back and take a drink as we immerse you in our story with Dr. Melanie Green. Melanie Green, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries. We are excited to have you. We're looking forward to the conversation, but let's begin with the speed round. Tim, you want to start? Sure, sure. Okay, here's a tough one. Coffee or tea? 
Uh, well, that's actually an easy one. It's tea for sure. I even have my cup of tea right here as we're speaking. So, yep. <laughs> Yay, another tea person. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I will drink either. Tim is Tim is purely a tea person. So yeah, I'm you. I'm with you, Melanie. Uh-huh. Tea only. Oh, kindred I, spirit. That's wonderful. I love the smell of coffee. I'm exactly the same yeah, way. Like, I love man, the smell just bring... of it, but the taste, no thank you. <laughs> It's just too hard to make for me. Otherwise, I'd, I'd have I'd have both. But um, all right. <laughs> there you go. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite sports star or your favorite researcher? Oh, interesting. Um, I think probably favorite musician um, because meeting Bruce Springsteen sounds like it would be a super fun thing. <laughs> So, and, you know, a rare opportunity. So I would have to seize that moment. (laughs) Check another kindred spirit thing. We are absolutely on the right path here, Melody. (laughs) This is a a great start then. I I, I think so. I think so. Okay. Okay. Third question. Do you think it's more important for men or women to be good storytellers if they're trying to get a date? Oh, well, I see you've done your homework. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in our research, what the findings were, were that it actually, the storytelling ability is more important for men. So when women are looking at men to date, and we just looked at heterosexuals um, in, in these studies, so, you know, obviously more to do there, but that the storytelling seemed to matter for men. Women liked good storytelling men better. And for women, it didn't seem to matter if we described a woman as a good storyteller or not a good storyteller. That just wasn't didn't seem to be how the men were making their decisions. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I mean, in general, I like to see things that have gender equality, but here was an area where we were seeing a gender difference. Um, so yeah, there you go. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm not on the dating scene because I don't know if my storytelling ability is very good. So, uh, this is is one piece of the puzzle, one piece of the puzzle. But you may have dodged a bullet there, Kurt. I think I did. I think I did. All right. So, so Melanie, if I'm trying to convince someone of something, should I load them down with a list of facts or should I weave that into an immersive story about the topic? Which would be more persuasive in general, in your opinion? Well, again, uh, my research suggests that um, putting your information into an immersive story can often be a highly persuasive way to go. Um, that said, though, in fairness to the overall research <laughs> literature, so uh, one of the jokes about being a social psychologist is if you ask a social psychologist about something, the answer is always, it depends, um, you know, because there's always contextual factors and things like that. <laughs> and so the, the real answer is that it depends. If you look at the research, you're going to see some situations we're like, yeah, okay, just give people those basic facts. That's all they need to know. Boom, you're good to go. But then other times, right, if they maybe might have trouble understanding it, or you need to give it a little more vividness and immediacy, then hey, stories are gonna um, help you get that extra persuasive punch, getting things in there. So is there a, are there certain situations where uh, you know, stories work better? Um, versus just giving the facts or vice versa? Or is that another one of our our lovely, it depends. (laughs) 
Well, one situation where stories seem to be especially useful is um, in situations where you might be likely to inspire what's called reactance. And reactance Mm. is a psychological state that emerges when people feel like their freedom's being threatened. So basically, we don't like people telling us what to do, right? We don't like people telling us we don't have a choice, we have to believe things. Like our instinct for that is we just want to push back and say, yes, I do have a choice. I can make up my own mind. Stop pushing me. And so stories, one of the nice things they can do is kind of get around that because it's not, okay, here's me waving my finger in your face and telling you, you have to do something. I'm just telling you a story about someone else and what happened to them and their situation is kind of relevant to the decision or um, the situation that you're facing. And so maybe when you see what happened to this character, it might help you think about, oh, okay, well, what if I were in that situation and and what would I want to do? So I would say that's one area where stories are particularly useful. And I think a a second area where stories are particularly useful is in kind of creating empathy and connection with people, right? So one of the things that stories can be really good at is giving us a window into the experiences or the worlds of people who are really different from ourselves, right? So maybe, uh, maybe I've never been a refugee, but I can read a story about a refugee and kind of understand some of the struggles or experiences that they're going through. And so kind of uh, empathy can be another, another way where stories can be like, that's an area where stories can be especially effective. We talked to Victoria Schaefer, who is um, at the university of Missouri, and she has a joint appointment between both the psychology school and the med school. And she's been doing some work with, with, um, end of life kinds of decision-making. And so one of the things that that she talked about was how challenging it is to really just present facts to, let's say her 90-year-old dad, who is, who is, you know, dying from cancer and what would it be like for him to go through chemo? And one of the things that, that she was thinking is that maybe a story would have helped, a narrative would have been better than just presenting them with the facts. Like 15% of the people get sores in their mouth. Okay. What, well, you know, I'm going to have a optimism bias. I'm going to think, well, that's not going to happen to me. Um, it, it, do, you, do you think stories could be used like in, in, in situations like that? You, you talked about reactants, like where we're going to worry about pushback or we're looking for empathy. Could it also, could stories also have a, a positive effect on the way that we understand uh, and uh, sort of come to realize uh, opportunities in, in our decision-making. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great example because um, in my background, I come out of a, a, the study of attitudes and persuasion. So a lot of it's like has been focused on, okay, how do we change people's attitudes? But especially in areas like that with medicine, it's not always about change. It's not always about pushing people toward one predetermined endpoint or another. Sometimes it's about just giving people more or a different type of information, giving them what they feel like they need to um, kind of make that good decision. And sometimes it really is the, what is this going to feel like? How can I mentally simulate? what it would be like to go through this experience myself. And so 
Absolutely. I think that area of the medical field, and, and you see that online, right? I mean, there's a lot of uh, online communities of people who are dealing with particular medical conditions and telling their stories and offering social support to other people who are going through the same thing. And so, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that can be a really important source of information that you're not necessarily going to get from your doctor. And I think it's a good case too, where it's not necessarily an either or. So, right, it's good to have, all right, what are the percentages or the odds of getting the side effect? And then it's good to have, okay, what are these other actual people who have gone through this? What have they experienced? So, yeah, I think that's a wonderful example. Yeah. And, and in Victoria's case, it was really interesting because she talked about this aspect um, that was, you know, one of the side effects was a dry mouth and you're going, oh, dry mouth, but no big deal. But she said, no, the dry mouth is actually like you can't eat. You you, you don't have any saliva in your mouth and it's it's a horrible, oh horrible thing. Um, she said, but but just the, the dry mouth component of that uh, didn't really convey that, but then she was also really worried. And this is a, this is an interesting part that she was talking about is, but then if you tell a narrative story about that dry mouth, then it becomes overly vivid for people. And it's a really, it's, it's, it's a relatively small percentage. So it's like this, how do you give the effective information, but still be able to not have people so focused in on those negative effects that they forego you know, uh, a potential treatment because the side effects could be bad and yet still being able to give them the, the proper information. You know, in your research, and I don't, obviously you probably haven't studied that in particular, but what are some of those challenges of using stories in the kind of the, the work that you do? And, and when do you kind of have to pull back from a story in, in others? Is there any, any of information that you have on that in particular? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question and a really important point because I think that is one of the tricky things with stories because since they are vivid and they, they, are, they can be impactful, if you do have a story that's not representative the the danger of it kind of having an undue influence on people's thinking and decision making is I think a real one, especially with something um, consequential like these medical decisions. And in fact, in one of our studies, we looked at um, we were looking at um, using stories as information in making treatment decisions. And this was I, I mean this was mm. with uh, non-medical, I mean, this wasn't with doctors. So this was just kind of like more, you know, purely initial research kind of thing. I don't want to overstate it. But one of the things that we found was that we gave people relevant information. So here's a story of a patient and they're similar to your target patient on things that should matter. So like their general mm. state of health or this kind of thing. But then in other cases, the story was similar, but on these irrelevant factors. So like, oh, um, this patient likes the same kind of music as this other patient, or they have the same hair color. Although, you know, arguably that you could make some kind of case where that could be relevant, but people were, were influenced by these irrelevant details. So like, Oh, this patient did well with this treatment and they like the same kind of music as this other patient. So I'm going to be more likely to choose this. And obviously you, you don't want people doing that. And so 
<laughs> one of the things is that these things that are like irrelevant or a little weird, you know, sometimes they can send people the wrong way. Uh, one that um, another researcher did, and they were doing uh, interviews with with breast cancer survivors. And occasionally, mm. if you're doing interviews with real people, they'll say things that are just weird or not right, you know, like, oh, maybe they tried this alternative treatment, and they think it worked for them. But like, really, medically, it, it probably didn't. That was probably just a fluke. But like, okay, if you're giving real people stories, sometimes you're gonna have things that like, okay, you don't actually want <laughs> other people to go with. Yeah. So, so what are the factors that make for a good immersive story? Yeah. So one of the big things really seems to be um, having kind of a coherent story. Does everything sort of fit together well in the way that we think it should? And another thing that kind of goes along with that is having a character that we can relate to. So mm. somebody that seems like a real person, somebody that we feel a connection with, um, those kinds of things seem to be really important. So. The other thing, though, that's interesting about stories is that there's kind of a lot of different ways that stories can be engaging. So if you think of like an action adventure movie, it's engaging because there's always something new happening and here's another twist in the plot. And then you think of maybe a, a piece of literature, an art film, that maybe nothing much happens, but you get this super in-depth view into the character and their feelings and emotions and views of the world. So my kind of general sense is that it has to have something that grabs you, but that something can be different depending on the story. And then it's also important that it doesn't kind of knock you out of the story, that there's not something that's like jarringly unrealistic where a character suddenly acts in some bizarre way that you don't expect from anything that's gone before, or, you know, there's not some weird discontinuity. So a lot of ways to get into it. And as long as there's not something sort of bad that kicks you out of it, then you can can get into it. You've done a lot of work on a theory, the transportation into narrative um, world. So can for, for our listeners who don't necessarily uh, have a background on that, can you help explain what that is and what does the theory state? Sure. So basically, this is the idea that the way that stories can inform us and change our minds is through this process of being immersed in them. So essentially we leave our real worlds behind, all of our attention and emotions are focused on what's going on in this story. You know, we're forming mental images, we're reacting to the events in the story. And so we come to sort of take the information from that story and integrate it into our minds and the way we think. So almost it's a little bit analogous to the way that we learn from experience. It's just the experience we're having is a vicarious experience within a story world as opposed to things that are maybe actually happening to us in the physical world. Well, I wanted to, to just to follow up on that uh, with, with regard to what are the mechanisms? Are there, what are the specific mechanisms that help us in that transportation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the things that, that help us in it are, one is that the stories grab our attention. So we have a lot of cognitive engagement with the things that we're reading. And so just like any other type of, of cognitive engagement, that helps us remember, that helps 
create change and so on. But then we also have our emotional involvement, which seems to be really critical. The feelings that we have in response to the characters. Do we feel affection for them? Are we angry about something that happened to them? Um, or do we feel inspired by them? So it's one of the, the cool things about stories is that they bring that together. The heart and the mind kind of come together that we have this deep thought, but then also the emotional reaction. And then a third piece can be sort of the mental imagery. We have the visual representation, either one that we've created in our minds from imagining words on a page or ones that are given to us by, you know, a filmmaker or that, uh, that type of thing. Well, and these affect us differently. You know, I'm struck by how the, the wide variety of stories that impact us all in different ways. I mean, certainly... If I think about movie making, there are some movies that are certainly more popular than others. But the fact that there is a long tail of many movies that get viewed by, you know, a variety of different subsets of our culture and get popularized, so to speak, sort of within certain things, boy, points to a tremendous amount of diversity as to what's going to engage us cognitively, what's going to engage us emotionally, and then and then what actually stimulates that mental imagery. I so appreciate the fact that you've brought these three things into, into view. At the same time, how do you deal with sort of the complexity of how those components actually show up? Yeah, so that's a, that's a challenge and it does seem to be that particular stories um can sometimes have more of one than the other you know some stories are mm. are kind of more visual other stories are more about the emotions and early on when we started researching this it was like okay can we pull these apart and and what's more important and it kind of seems to be that depending on the story, sometimes one emerges more important and sometimes another one does. But if you look kind of across different stories and different studies, it sort of seems to be this mix of all of them. <laughs> but yeah, it's like to, to get in a little deeper of it seems to be a little more specific to like, okay, what topic are you dealing with or what type of story are you using and those sorts of things so again back to that it depends <laughs> Answer. It, it, it comes back it comes back to that so i i, I want to i'm going to have a dual part question here because i want to build off of of what you were just talking about but then i want to go back to, to something else here so so the first part of this is you just talked about this intermix between visual and written and different things have you done research that shows like uh, the effectiveness of a story if it is just in a written format or if it's in a uh, spoken format like we're doing here or if it's in a uh, video or, or live some you know where you have visual and spoken together is there any difference in what you're doing or have you have you looked at that in particular yeah there has been a little bit of research on that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting for, so for the most part, it's sort of like, you know, there's, there's a bunch of studies and some of them are using written materials and some of them are dealing with video materials. In fact, there's a whole research area called entertainment education that, you know, has looked at video and radio broadcasts and things like that. And then there's a much, much smaller group of studies that tries to directly compare them. And um, so the results are 
a little bit mixed. So some of the things that seem to emerge is that if one's better, often there seems to be a little bit of an edge for video, um, probably mm-hmm. because that enhanced vividness. Um, one of the things that we found in one of our studies is that it actually depends a little bit on individual differences within the person or the viewer. And what we found is that Mm. people who were higher in an individual difference called need for cognition, and that's basically an individual difference. That's how much people like to think about things. So it's not intelligence. It's just how much you enjoy that process of exerting cognitive effort. So a a high need for cognition person likes to debate and likes to solve crossword puzzles and, you know, just really likes to kind of think about things. Those type of people um, were actually more immersed in the written version, whereas people who were Mm. lower on that tendency, you know, people who are perfectly capable about thinking about things, but sort of mostly do it when it's something that is relevant to them and matters to them. Those, those, so the lower need for cognition people were more transported into the video, the higher were more transported into the text. So what seems to be happening is that if you, for whatever reason, are willing to and excited about putting effort into that text and wow, you can create this whole world in your mind and you're deciding what the characters look like based on what the author has written, like that can be really good. But if you're not, you know, inherently motivated to put that effort in, having that work sort of in a sense done for you, then that's going to affect you more. And then there's also some studies that kind of show like depending on what type of attitude you're trying to affect or what outcome that, you know, video is better for some and text is better for others. So I think there's certainly some complexities uh, there as well. It's it's interesting because I think one of the interesting aspects, and I don't have any empirical research on this, this is purely uh, conjecture by by myself. And so we've had conversations, Tim and I, about podcasting and this idea that uh, there's this element of familiarity with podcasters that happens that people seem to feel like they, they know us or they, they, they've become part of this extended community that we have and that, that they're listening and they feel like they're in the room with, with us as we're talking to different people. And, and we get comments like that from people. We get we get those. And I feel the same thing sometimes when I'm listening to other podcasts. And so I'm, I, that was part of my question as I'm going, so is there a difference in how people actually process that, um, those stories and, and the narratives around that within those different um, modes of communication? And I just want, it, I, I feel like there's something with the, the verbal aspect um, that I think is is different. Obviously, I'm sure there's differences across all three, um, but but it's interesting to to have that as we as we're you know we're podcasters and we hear this. And so uh, again, no empirical evidence on that, just the anecdotal kind of stories that we hear. Yeah, and it, I mean, it sounds to me there's a, a concept in psychology and communication called parasocial interaction, and this is the idea that we feel like we're forming friendships and relationships with media personalities or celebrities, even though there's 
not necessarily any two-way communication there. I mean, podcasts are a little different because, you know, people can write in or, you know, those kind of things. Um, but it's, it's mostly one way. So like, okay, you know, you feel like a friend coming into their car or their living room or whatever, even though like you don't know them or don't know them yet, maybe, right? We can be optimistic, but, um, but yeah, we have that, that sense. And, and actually the original research on this was on newscasters. So sort of back in the days when there were just the three nightly newscasts. And so, oh, here's this benevolent presence coming into your living room and telling you what's going on in the world. Um, But yeah, that's a very, cool thing that can happen. So I think, I think that's a lot of what goes on with podcasts. And I also think, I do think there is something about, you know, voices and that kind of connection. And this is beyond my own research expertise. I suspect there are experts out there on that, but you know, some of it, and I I think you both have this, but some people have just wonderful radio voices, right? Just like, you know, friendly and inviting and, you know, you just want to keep listening. So <laughs> I think there are a couple different elements there too. Absolutely. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, mm-hmm. a, a situation at a concert with James Taylor, where someone in the audience yells out in the, in the, those, that quiet moment between songs, they, they yell, I love you, James. And he just, he just kind of looks up into the blackness and he said, great. I, I, I hope we have the opportunity to meet sometime. <laughs> <laughs> that is a right? hilarious response. I love it. <laughs> it was, a, it was a perfect response to this, uh, this parasocial interaction. This is fantastic. We, we get this, uh, Kurt and I get this when people say, uh, when we when we do a, a video thing and they say, oh, I've listened to your voice all these times and now I get to see you. And this is like, there's some fulfillment in it. Uh, uh, we feel the same way, I guess, you know, uh, all, all the time as well. But um, I don't know where I'm going with this. But <laughs> no, I feel like there's no, there's no, no need to go anywhere, Tim. You can just, you can just go around in a circle all day long. You but have a you good know, radio um, voice, Tim. So, <laughs> but before um, coming here to Buffalo, I was in Carolina, so I do appreciate the James Taylor reference. <laughs> Very good. Well, we will come back to that, Melanie. We will definitely come back to that. A question around business. So, you know, a lot of our listeners work in business and various different things. So, um, if I'm a business leader um, and I'm trying to change the organization, it it sounds like story that, that presenting that change story is probably a better way or, or maybe a better way of driving that uh, change throughout the organization than just saying, hey, look, we need to change because here's the list of facts. But in, in creating some sort of narrative around that, would you agree with that? Or have you done or seen any research on, on like organizational change uh, with, with any of your work? So my own research hasn't really dealt with organizations, but there is research out there. And I would say that it definitely can be something that's useful, especially because one of the things that narratives can do is they help create meaning and they kind of, Mm. you know, set a structure and, and help organize things. And so a story can be a really nice kind of way of, summarizing and illustrating the guiding principles 
maybe that people want the organization to follow. So like one of the examples that's sometimes given is, um, I don't know about like the founding and saving of FedEx or things like that. Like, oh, this is an mm-hmm. organization that's willing to take risks, or this is an organization that you know goes above and beyond for their customers, or like whatever that th- those origin stories are, or like change stories. That kind of one of the reasons they're powerful is that it encapsulates something that's like important to the mission of the company that they that they want to convey. Um, that said, I mean, I think that the cautionary note is that there does need to be authenticity there as well. If it's just like, oh, we're going to try to tell this story and it kind of comes across as false or things like that, then, you know, those are not typically going to work as well. So it, uh, so stories can, can be very important and effective, but it has to have that, that real core. It can't be like, oh, let's just tell people a happy story and then they'll be glad about whatever we want to do you know it's not it doesn't quite work that way (laughs) yeah yeah so that that element of authenticity and i know some of your work has talked about you know creating a sense of warmth and confidence in in the messenger and various different pieces and so having making sure that that is is there i think that's that's really um key thank you for that is there is there um any research that you're doing now that is kind of fun or new that that you would like to, you know, maybe hasn't been published yet or, or anything that, that you want to talk about? Um, this is sure. your opportunity to, to share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the areas that my lab's been looking at recently is um, stories for social good. So basically, how can stories be used to encourage others to um, help other people or donate, volunteer, things like that. And there's a couple of um, fun directions that we've been going with that. And one of these is we've been looking at a story type called restorative narratives. And these are basically stories where something bad happens to someone, but then they recover from it. And this in a way comes out of journalism, because if you look at our typical journalism and news, what do we see? We always see the bad news. Okay, there's Mm -hmm. been a natural disaster. There's been a shooting. There's been whatever. And then the news organizations often just like move on to the next bad thing. And, And it doesn't follow like what happens to the people after that. How do we rebuild after the flood? How does our community recover after these struggles? And so restorative narratives tell those stories you know, how people move from something bad to kind of come back to a better place. And so um, one of these th- the things that these stories can do is, is be kind of helpful to people in those situations to say, hey, look, you know, don't give up hope. There's a path forward. But one of the other cool things that we're finding that these stories can do is they can actually motivate other people to want to help. That if I see like, mm. okay, you're going through this bad situation, but you know, you're working and things are getting better for you, then I actually it seems like people actually want to help even more than if they just read about somebody in a bad situation. Wow, that, that that's really interesting. You know, yeah, we've talked about uh, the identifiable victim as being something that's uh, really important when it comes to in pro-social fundraising specifically. You know, to be able to have that that story, but uh, of, of the specific person. But I don't think they've uh, we've uh, done a good job of really identifying how important this uh, this restorative narrative 
aspect of the story is, right? Because we don't want to hear just about someone who um, is just homeless. Uh, we want to hear about someone who was homeless, who through the help of this pro-social organization brought them out of uh, poverty and homelessness and and they built a new life and they got a job and then they got their MBA and then they became a CEO and then a musician, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I don't know if you need to I'll go all the way to CEO and, and, and different pieces. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, I figured that the arc to musician had to be more interesting than, you know, just MBA, C, you know, than just <laughs> out of homelessness. You could go through the MBA and CEO and then get to, okay, that's a bit of silliness. But, but I think that this is a really cool part. It, it Melanie, d- does this tie in? D- does the restorative narrative tie into the identifiable victim uh, concept, or, or am I just making that up? No, no, you're not making it up. And I think it um, it starts there. It, it definitely has that relation, and it kind of has the same. Um, we think some of the same underlying mechanisms there. So one of the things that having an identifiable victim kind of does is it helps it be less overwhelming, right? If there's 10,000 people that have been affected by this, this natural disaster, like, oh my God, I I can't help 10,000 people. That's too much. It's overwhelming, but maybe I can help this one person. And so it's, we think it's kind of a similar idea with restorative narratives that, if you're faced with someone in a bad situation, one of the things happen that happens is you feel these negative emotions like, oh, I feel, you know, sadness or sympathy or maybe even fear because like, oh, what if that was me? And one way that we try to manage our negative emotions sometimes is just to like suppress them and get rid of them. So like, okay, this thing is making me feel really bad. I don't want to feel bad anymore. So I'm not going to think about it. Mm. But if you have a restorative narrative, this bad thing has happened, but hey, look, I have this hope, look, they're on this positive trajectory. So, hey, I don't feel that bad anymore. So uh, it's okay to empathize with them because it's not going to like ruin my my mental state. And then I'm actually more willing, and because I've empathized, then I'm more willing to help. So it's that same kind of thing. It takes away, like it, it helps you not be overwhelmed by like, oh, there's so much badness and trouble in the world. It like gives you that hope and that hope motivates you to help even more we think is what's happening there. It reminds me of, of two things it brings to, to mind. One one is the peak end rule, right? Where you're talking about, all exactly, right, you have this exactly. you know, piece and then now we're ending on this this good moat, right? So that's a it's a wonderful way of, of thinking about that and, and, and moving forward. But the other is this, uh, just like uh, Teresa Amable and, and her work on on progress, right? And, and this idea that that just even a little bit of progress is is motivational for people, and so if you're just showing them the negative, there's no progress to towards a, a positive end goal. And and what you're showing in the in the restorative um, narratives is that hey, there is there is progress, and so you're moving towards a, a better place, which the progress in and of itself could be part of that motivational factor that comes into play. Uh, so this might be a little bit random, Melanie, but conspiracy theories are rather complex stories. Uh, what is the do you have you done any research or do you have any thoughts about how those stories impact us and why they're so easy and so complex uh, at the at the same time for so many people to to congregate around? Yeah, so I have not done research on this myself, um, but uh, one of my friends, Joanne Miller, has been doing a lot of work on this. But yeah, I think they really, they come, 
they meet some of the same needs that stories do in a way, because one of the things that conspiracy theories do is they try to create meaning and humans Mm. really want things to have meaning. They really want things to make sense and they want things to fit in. And so, and, and we're living in a world right now where a lot of things kind of feel like they don't make sense, right? There's this crazy pandemic and we all have to stay in our houses and, and having something, even if it's, I mean, to those who are not in the conspiracy theory, sort of like weird and nonsensical and, you know, they're putting together all these things that really shouldn't make sense. But this idea that it has this unifying theme of, okay, there are these shadowy forces and they're controlling everything. It gives people that, that meaning structure. And so I think a lot of the, the things that make stories compelling also make these conspiracy theories compelling. And I think they also, you know, uh, some of these things today, like have this sort of cult-like aspect to them where it's not, there's a story, but then also layered onto that is there's a community. And at a time when people are, you know, more isolated, more lonely, okay, here's this community and we all believe in this, this greater cause. I mean, that's very psychologically compelling to people. It really is kind of hitting at all of our needs and vulnerabilities in this sort of frightening way because it's like meeting all our needs but in this terrible you know in this terrible way instead of a healthy way so yeah yeah I, I I like that explanation because I, I always sit there and go well if you just as Tim said you know sometimes they're so complex and they're so many different factors like you have to get these people on board and these people on board and all of these different things and you go Look, if you just look at Occam's razor and just go, what's the simplest mm-hmm. explanation here? <laughs> this is blown out of the water right away. You'd have to get, you know, just the, the, you know, faking of the moon shot or various different things like that, just to go back on some of those. And you, you actually think about it and the number of people that would have to be involved and to be able to keep that quiet and all of the other factors that go in. I mean, just the, the, the mere, you know, breadth of people involved in complexity would kind of disown it. But what you're saying is that that that's not the part. It's not necessarily the part that is this uh, of rational piece. It's this element of giving a meaning to something that I'm feeling is missing. And so then it becomes a motivated reasoning aspect and you're feeling like, all right, this this helps me comprehend the world and feel better about the, the world, even if it's a negative you know, these these nefarious people are doing this um, to us, I, I at least understand the world better and therefore I, I fit in better. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think that's exactly it. But the other piece of it is that it has, you know, this complexity and things like that. I mean, think about something like, you know, the Game of Thrones, which I actually have not personally watched, but like, it's complicated, it's suspenseful, what's going to happen next? So you kind of have this suspense of like, oh, what's going to be the next piece of the story? And then you maybe have this importance, like, I know the real story and other people don't. So it's like, it's like, in a way, a a beautiful tying together of all of these things that like activate our reward centers, you know, we like to be important and know things, we like to have suspense and then have things revealed to us. So it's like, it's just pinging all of these, you know, things that our mind is set up to, to like and be rewarded by. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah, I think you nailed it. That That's right there. I think that's great. So, oh, Okay, let's get back to James Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to James Taylor. <laughs> uh, so what's on your playlist these days, Melanie? Do you have a COVID playlist even? 
<laughs> I should. Um, you know, it's funny. I have children, and so and they're obsessed with the musical Hamilton, and so our playlist has mostly been Hamilton over and over. <laughs> Which, fortunately, I like it too. <laughs> yes. How old are your kids? Um, they're twins. They're eleven. <laughs> so middle schoolers. Okay. It, it's funny because uh, I have a I have a fourteen year old and a uh, now eleven. Um, she turned eleven in November, but. A, they don't they don't do much together, right? They're a boy and a girl, and they're they're just a far enough apart in age that they they don't do a, a lot together. But Hamilton was this the the this combination thing, and they would they would sing in the car. They they had it memorized, and they would go back and forth, and and Elise would play uh, Hamilton, and you know. Uh, my my son Quinn would play Burr, and they they do the different parts, and they would they'd be wrapping it all out. It was it was pretty amazing. Um, there's something magical about Hamilton with those with with that age group. I think so. Uh, but so you, you're listening to a lot of Hamilton. But what's what's your what's your home? What, what's your musical home like? You you did bring up James Taylor, so I am leading the witness here, just for the sake of <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of uh, full disclosure. But but what 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 what's the music that you love to listen to when just for comfort's sake? Yeah, well, you know, so I grew up with kind of folk music and things like that. So. Um, yeah, so I I like James Taylor and um, recently kind of going like blast from the past, the Traveling Woolberries I've been listening to because I also I grew up in Florida in Gainesville, which loves to claim Tom Petty as their you know homegrown <laughs> rock and roll. Whenever they would play a Tom Petty song on the radio, here comes some homegrown rock and roll. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of going back to the the blast from the past kind of thing, comfort music for <laughs> for these. Um, socially distanced times. Yeah. You know, Gainesville is, is home to, you know, Don Felder from the Eagles and uh, Steven still spent a fair mm-hmm. amount of time there uh, when he was in high school. So there's a lot of rock and roll that came out of, out of Gainesville, Florida. That's a pretty interesting, you know, little community right there. Hmm. Yeah. I did okay. not know that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so enough, for, <laughs> enough for musical trivia. We're, <laughs> we're curious, Melanie, do you listen to music while you work? You know, it's funny. I cannot listen to music when I work. Um, and my husband and I are very different in this. He always has music on and yeah. I just can't concentrate. So even if it's on, I just block it out. And so, yeah, no, it, it has to be separate <laughs> for me. We've been asking a, a number of, of actually pretty much everybody on the show that, and we're working um, uh, with Melanie Brooks to do just some anecdotal um, research that she's she's working on that, but yeah, there, it's interesting. They people fall into basically two main camps, and there's kind of a third that's in between. But uh, lots of people. Tim is one of those can't listen to it. I can listen to it fine, and then there's this in between of I can listen as long as it doesn't have words or if it is uh, you know uh, yeah. some background noise kind of uh, elements that are are not necessarily where I'm listening to the music, but it's more of a drowning out or just adding an, uh, a level of energy into the room. So uh, it's, it's interesting. We'll, we'll have to, I'm looking forward to finding out more yeah, once we, Melanie gets done with that work. That's intriguing. I'll look forward to hearing more about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it is definitely. But we are so grateful for your time, Melanie. This has been so much fun. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Dr. Green, have a free-flowing conversation, and then talk about whatever else comes into our story-filled brains. You know, it's always kind of fun just waiting to see exactly what comes up in our brains <laughs> when you name it. And so I'm glad that I'm glad we have story-filled brains because we have stories. We're, yes. We like stories. Well, it was a narrative-filled brain, story-filled brain. I was going to go fairy-tailed brains. I don't know. Oh, you know, no, no, I no, never no. really know until it actually comes to that moment when there's that blank line in our script that I read. So, well, isn't that great though? I mean, you just brought up fairy tales. Talk about immersive stories, right? Oh yeah, fairy tales draw us in in a fantastic way, and then all the the moralistic ones, the Aesop's fables. You know, they're <laughs> right. We're 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 teaching, we're, we're passing down our moral code from generation to generation with stories. Well, and if you if you doubted the power of stories, right there, I think you have just proved that this is a powerful way of conveying information and getting people to uh, form attitudes and beliefs based upon a story that isn't necessarily directly correlational to what you're trying to get them at. As you said, Aesop's fables, there's morals to those stories that, you know, a hare and a, and a turtle, right, are two, we're not, that's a fairy tale story, but it tends, sends a moral lesson about you know, consistency and working through versus running fast, that that's not necessarily the the gist of the story, but it's what we take from it. Well, and what would what would it be like if uh, if parents sat down with kids and say, uh, don't rush. So taking the tortoise and the hare story, right, where it's the the slow and steady wins the race is the sort of the moral, right? So if if parents sat down and said, don't try to always be the first, just make sure that you're consistent. Then if, if it's just, you know, give them the facts kind of thing, what mm -hmm. would we have? We'd have reactants, right? Kids would go, no, I'm not going to, no, if my parents are telling me that, no way am I going to do that. Well, at least my daughter would react that way. That's for <laughs> damn sure. So but you're right. And, and, and this idea that how long is that going to stick with somebody in their memory as this learning point would, if our parents had told us that and we had never heard the story, would we be talking about, oh, remember that time when my, your parents told you about, you know, slow and steady <laughs> wins the race? 50 years later? No, we wouldn't be talking about that. But we talk about the tortoise and the hare because it sticks, it's memorable, and that's the power of stories. And that's what that's what Melanie was talking about, right? This immersiveness of these stories, this idea that they have this vividness and immediacy, and they're going to provide that, as she said, the extra pervasive, persuasive punch. I love that idea that this, this yeah. it's an extra persuasive punch. And so I think there's some really cool things there. They're right. That this idea that we can provide, that stories can provide a way to subtly influence thoughts and emotions that facts and figures don't do as well. And you brought up this idea of reactance. And she talked about that, this idea that, hey, if you think somebody's going to be a reactance to the information, maybe a story. Maybe, maybe just a story might be a better way of doing that. 
Well, you had uh, we had a conversation actually with John Levy, who is uh, the the founder of Influencers, and uh, John told a story uh, that that really caught your attention uh, in, in regard to this. So again, it's one of these elements. It just is this idea of immersing. So, uh, hundred people on the Zoom. Actually, probably by that point, it might have been less, but. Um, Lots of people on the Zoom call, and John was going to leave, and then he mentioned just briefly, you know, this idea, the story of this woman that he uh, met in the duty-free shop in Sweden, and then brought her to to Israel and bought a ticket for her, and then everybody's like, what? "You can't leave now. You have to tell us the story." <laughs> right. And then he wove the story, and it was compelling, and. You could see just watching the video. And this is on Zoom. So you got to think, hey, it's not even in person. It is on Zoom over video. And you could tell the people were leaning in. We were wanting to know what happened next. And it was just this wonderful John tells stories absolutely beautifully. Yeah. And the fact of a good storyteller and how you draw people in. And to this, John the story was both this wonderful tale, this narrative of this inviting out of just, you know, meeting somebody uh, as you're buying something in uh, the duty-free shop saying she's going, oh, you're going to Israel. And he says, yes, we are. Do you want to come? And she says, yes. And then the story about what happens throughout this whole week that she then goes with them, they buy a ticket to her to fly to Israel, they go and they, this whole story. But there's this wonderful, like what's happening next, but there's also a moral to some of these things that John tweaks out, this idea of adventure and how we never say yes to adventure and all of these different pieces that he wove in with some other aspects of the story. Again, that if he would have just said, here are these things about adventure and about how you do it, it wouldn't have made the same impression. And so right. I, those types of elements are really powerful. And that's what Melanie is talking about, I believe. We have great examples of stories conveying more than just morals like Aesop's fables, but codes of how we behave, right? The Quran, the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, these are documents, long, long stories that that are more than just, this is what you should and shouldn't do. It's how you should do it yeah. as well. You know, there's a certain prescriptive aspect and they're immersive. These are incredibly immersive stories. And and I, I love how um, Pamela Rutledge, uh, the researcher, Pamela Rutledge, actually said that stories are how we think. I, I mean, just like that alone is is so capsulating she but she went on to say that they are how we make meaning of life stories are so important to us that we cannot separate our our life experience from stories and and i think that that's that's the opportunity you know is yeah. for us to to think about that well and even going beyond like these uh fables and the uh, you know our religious texts that are story based there's a, an example so you and I both worked at BI Worldwide, and I don't know if you heard this story, but when I first joined, um, BI had been started by a man by the name of Guy Schenecker. And there was a story that went around, and I don't know its validity or its truthfulness, but it was this idea that, hey, back in, I so I started in 1992 there. And back in the early 80s, there was a 
pretty big recession for those of us who are old enough to remember in the early 80s. And it was the first time that Guy had to lay some people off and he hated it. And there was one person in particular who got laid off, but then had some family tragedy. And so the story was that, hey, you know, Guy reached out to that family and he gave them $10,000, which at that point was a significant amount a of money yeah. to help them through. And he never told anybody about it. So again, this is, the, you know, to verify this, I don't have any verification, but it was the story that helped create the idea of what I thought the culture of BI was. It was this idea that, you know, we may not get paid a lot, but that, hey, the owner of this company is concerned about us and cares about us. And if something happened to us, would have our back. And that was powerful for me. And much more so than if I would have read, you know, the mission vision statement, we're a caring company oh, and, yeah. and different pieces. Yeah. And so I think that is really true. It, it, just to, to uh, graft onto that, this idea that stories and corporations are really important because they set culture. They help identify what the culture is. There was another story about uh, the same man, the founder of BI Worldwide, uh, that he was pretty strict about making sure that people were uh, at their desks and yeah. working during working hours. It was a what they called butts in chairs was the uh, was the local terminology that they used, and. Um, Yet there was also sort of the sense of, you know, if you need a break, you should take a break. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, so uh, uh, one of my colleagues said that many years ago he was taking a break and he and, and, and one of his buddies had brought in a dartboard. And so they were they were playing darts and he said they were literally only playing darts for 10 minutes. It wasn't like they were spending the entire afternoon playing darts. But it was on a happened to be on a Friday afternoon, and they were playing darts. And who walks through but the founder of the company, Guy Schenker, and uh, and he said that Monday when he arrived at work, the dartboard was gone. <laughs> so there was a clear message that you might you you can take a break, but you really can't have fun doing it. And and so that you know so that story then the story that comes from that experience that circulates through the whole culture and lets people know. Okay, so we just we shouldn't have dartboards. That's a good idea. That's good to know. You know, well, we don't want to get on the boss's bad side. But we it it expands beyond that. It goes beyond just the specific around the dartboard because we infer meaning from that. Right, so we infer right. that it's not just dartboards, it's any kind of fun. It's that that right. message that goes through there. I do remember the butts and chairs, and I do remember the stories of of like people warning you on Friday. Guy will walk around the company at, at four twenty-five because <laughs> right. work ended at four thirty, and if you weren't there, he noticed. And so yeah. again, those are the stories that permeate. Um, yeah. So again, uh, that that was ages ago, and and the culture of BI is is vastly different. Uh, but the stories persist. But the stories, the, persist. the stories persist. Okay, what else did you want to groove on, Kurt? So. So we, we're already talking about it. There's this element of narrative transportation that yeah. that uh, Dr. Green talks about, this idea that we're transported into a story, and that helps us learn almost like we were experiencing it ourselves. And so we just, we talked about this, right? So I didn't have to be there at the the person playing darts 
but oh. I hear the story and I have learned that lesson almost like I was there, right? Right. So there are those types of experiences that we can learn from that, which is much more powerful than a bullet list of here are the rules of how we interact and, and operate at this organization. Way and more. I think that's, I think that's powerful. You it, know? It, it, it absolutely is. And, and there's a thing on this and this is a tangent and I have no idea if it makes any sense at all, but the, I, what it got me thinking about is mirror neurons and mirror neurons are those neurons in our brain that fire when we do a behavior, right? So our parts of our brain light up when I'm reaching for a cup or if I'm walking or if I'm talking, right? Certain areas of our brain, certain specific neurons light up because those are in control of that. But they also light up, these mirror neurons do, when we watch somebody, when we observe somebody doing the behavior that is being done. And that was a surprise for, for neuroscientists when this was found, like they were uh, actually had a monkey with all these probes in its brain and they were trying to map where the monkey, you know, if they lifted up a cup, what would the, where would those um, neurons fire? And they just found by accident because uh, one of the research assistants came in and picked up a cup and the monkey was still wired up to these and all of a sudden they fired when the yeah. researcher picked up the cup and that was unexpected. And subsequent to this, there's been a lot of research on this. And part of this is this idea that, hey, these mirror neurons are part of the way that we learn, part of the way that we uh, in get information and have it be part of this experience, like almost like an experience that we build upon. And so my, my thought went, oh, is our stories like you know, are they activating these mirror neurons? And for the most part, uh, they're still, it's a relatively new field that they're looking at and they've studied mostly visual aspects. So again, picking up that cup or not picking up that cup. And so you think of story, well, that works for movies, it works for video, but it doesn't necessarily work for just a, a plain story or a text or an email that goes out that that says words and conveys things. But there have also been some studies that say, hey, maybe mirror neurons work in the in the uh, getting language and in, in, in making our language become part of how we, we learn it. And if so, then that's words. And there's there's some people who are thinking that stories actually can transport us in our mind's eye. Uh, into those locations. So again, then do mirror neurons work there? Now, again, with my aphantasia, I don't know that, but you know, that's how it goes. Well, when we see, uh, the, the researchers have gone on to, to show that when we see a mother being loving toward a child, we feel that same love for the child. When mm -hmm. we, right? So, and this could be replicated in business environments that yeah. managers and leaders uh, could publicly recognize people in a way that that makes that person who is being recognized feel really good and and then it actually draws on the on the mirror neuron kind of collective feeling within the organization like wow when that person when people do good things they get recognized and well, and that that feels good we we want that we 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 sort of root for them but at the same time we feel better well, you're talking about actually demonstrating the behavior, and I think that is true from a mirror neuron piece. Going back to the story piece, I think that organizations need to use stories much more than they do. I, for whatever reason, yeah. 
I think yeah. businesses are scared because stories kind of can be emotive. They are not hard and fast. They're not, you're not setting down this list of here are the procedures that we do. Step one, step two, step three, and they're soft. And I think business leaders get scared by saying Could that be. we have to tell stories. Now, not everyone. And again, I'm, I'm doing broad strokes here. But I've worked with lots of organizations where you're trying to convey information and you go, let's use a story. Let's pull somebody from the field. Let's see how they used it. Let's convey what that is from a story, a narrative about that, that will help everybody else understand the importance of this and put things beyond just that, you know, step one, step two, step three piece of this. Yeah. Cause, cause that's not going to work. Like we, we, we just, we actually, we just shake that off totally. Uh, when it's the step one, step two, step three, the stories are much more effective. Um, can we talk about parasocial relationships? <laughs> 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 Parasocial interactions. Yes. So, what, this is crazy because before Melanie talked about this, I had never heard of this. I, it was a, a, a new idea. Yeah. New, new and then we just talked with Dessa a couple of weeks ago and she brought it up. And so it's yeah. like, is this just me noticing it now? Because mere exposure effect? Is it, is it confirmation that? Bias, is it confirmation yeah. bias? But I think it's cool. I think it's really cool. Um, it it is, and it's the idea that we're forming relationships and friendships with like media personalities or celebrities, and yeah. you know, as silly as this may sound, you and I have had the experience of getting on a call with somebody, and they're like, "Oh man, I listen to the podcast all the time, and now I get to see you, and I'm actually talking to you, and it's like I can hear your voices now from your face, it's like." It's just us. <laughs> <laughs> it is just us. It's just us. Like two. Two dudes that are just, <laughs> right. you know, pontificating way too much. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting. It's fun. Uh, it's an interesting piece. And I think there's something about podcasts. And we talked a little bit about this, right? This idea that we have yeah. the, you're hearing our voice in probably if headphones, maybe not headphones, but, you know, it's this yeah. voice. Like, and we're inviting you into these conversations. And so, you know, there's lots of people we have never met that, know a lot about us and and feel like they may understand who we are which is it's a wonderful thing it's a scary thing to a certain degree but it's a wonderful thing so yeah so what about restorative narratives tim that was the last thing that i definitely wanted to talk about because i just thought this is really powerful in what it could do yeah, this is the arc of going from from sort of a bad place or something that is bad to a, a place that's good, right? To to use the story as that that arc to show progress and to to help us move yeah. from the bad place to the good place, right? Yeah, it is this idea that if we just talk about the trauma that people can check out, there's a fatigue, there's a what can I do factor of this. But this idea, so for instance, in a hurricane all my, all the devastation. And, you know, think about daily news and that's what you hear. And then they move on to the next disaster, but they yeah. don't show the rebuilding after the hurricane. And what, what Melanie is talking about is this idea that we need more of these restorative narratives, these ideas that yes, this horrible thing happened, but now we're moving forward and we're making progress. And, and that can help heal not only individuals, but it can help in in motivating and healing the community 
And it's that positive trajectory that can also influence and motivate others who hear the story. So, and I don't know if this work has been done. I don't know if if Melanie did it or others, but we talked with uh, Linda Toonstrom uh, about charitable giving and this idea where she was talking about, you know, uh, her research is about if you have thoughts and prayers versus, you know, actually giving you know, tangible help and do those influence each other? I wonder if there's studies that say, hey, just how much do people give if there's just this story that is the trauma story and the identifiable victim, which we yeah. know works better, but it's like, yep. you know, the hurricane hit, they destroyed all these houses. This person is lost their home and now they're living on the street versus that same story, but they're living on the street, but they're starting to rebuild and they have, you know, they've started the construction of their house and things are getting better in the neighborhood and they're, you know, X number of people are moving on. Wondering if the charitable contributions for that would be different, if there would be more. So I think that's some research that I don't know if it's being done, but if it's not, that'd be cool to to see done. I think it's a really, really interesting question that you, that you raised there, Kurt, because, of course, the way that we frame things and and how we position a story, especially in uh, psychological studies, in, in economic studies, makes a difference, right? We, we know that that absolutely makes a difference. We also know that that this idea of, of uh, progress is really important to persuasion. You know, Robert Cialdini, progress is a central tool to help show credibility and and to persuade people because if you have a a progressive, a progressive story, that that uh, tends to be more uh, positively impactful for the person who's listening. Um, It it progress, of course, there's the progress principle, Mm -hmm. right? Teresa Mobley. Yep. You know, I mean, she's like, you know, documented deeply the importance of, of feeling progress as well as actually demonstrating progress, you know, both sides of that. And I also think that progress was, is kind of a central part of the growth mindset, you know, work mm. that Carol Dweck did as well. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a theme w- within her work. So progress is a really important thing. And to, to think about it from a, a narrative perspective, to think about it, uh, progress as being part and central to the restorative narrative, I think is something that is both intuitive and yet I, it, it, I don't think companies are taking advantage of it. Yeah, I don't think companies are taking advantage of it. I wonder if, again, charitable organizations are taking, the government yeah. is taking advantage of this. And, and again, I'll just, I want to quote from uh, what Dr. Green said. She said, you know, this, okay, so this, she said, quote, so, okay, this thing is making me feel bad. I don't want to feel bad anymore, so I'm not going to think about it. That's the normal way. But right. if you have a restorative narr- narrative, this bad thing has happened, but hey, look, I have hope. There is this positive, they're on a positive trajectory. That in and of itself, you just, the the reframing of how that story gets told with the positive end allows people then not to have that feeling of fatigue or feeling bad. And so they don't just discount it and don't want to think about it because now there's hope. And again, we can talk about hope or optimism, but that's, uh, you know, with Bertrand Molly that we talked about the, the <laughs> yeah, difference. Yeah. And it's probably more optimism on this from his perspective, right? It's this idea that we can do something about it. More control. In his area, you know, his definition of hope is 
hope is we're hopeful when we don't have control. Optimism is when we uh, have actually, we're optimistic because we do have some control over the outcome. And I think that's showing optimism. And I think that's the powerful part of this. Absolutely. Well, with that, folks, we'll be turning over to a uh, to listen to Kurt because he's going to uh, share uh, the bonus track and groove idea with us in just a minute. Hello, everyone. This is Kurt with your bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Melanie was particularly relevant for me since much of my business is focused on communications inside of organizations. For years, I've worked with business clients trying to get them to see that they can use stories to help communicate information and drive behavior change that will work in a much more powerful way than just presenting the facts and figures. It was refreshing to see that my ideas actually have some additional scientific support. Melanie started out by describing the power of immersive stories, that they have been shown to have a persuasive punch, as she called it. She said that stories can be particularly compelling in situations where you might be likely to experience reactance when you are trying to get people to change behaviors or even beliefs. Stories are also powerful in creating empathy and feelings of connection. Melanie has done some very interesting work on restorative narratives, how stories that show tragedy or hardships, but then show people moving through those to some positive outcome are particularly powerful in getting people through hard times and eliciting help from others. We also talked in depth about narrative transportation. The idea that some of the power of a good story is that we become immersed in the story and that immersion process changes our minds. Stories provide both a cognitive and emotional engagement that brings us to a new place and are powerful in helping us remember and learn information. Tim and I talked about how some of this power may be because stories activate our mirror neurons, but this research isn't 100% on this. Okay, on to our groove idea for the week. We want you to use a story instead of just facts and figures at some point. Figure out a way to weave a compelling story into a situation where you wouldn't normally use it. See how it impacts people. Watch their reactions. We can all get better at storytelling and there is no better time than the present. And Tim and I are going to hopefully integrate some more storytelling into our episodes. You'll have to let us know how we do. That ends this episode of Behavior Grooves. As always, thank you for listening. We truly, truly appreciate you spending time with us, and we hope that you've learned something. Now go out and find your groove. Mm-hmm.